Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. The meat of the episode today will be an interview with Kevin Mears, who is the former director of research and strategy for the Cleveland Browns. As you may remember, a little while back, I talked to the current uh, director of research and strategy, Dave Giuliani. Uh, I enjoy talking with Kevin Mears here because now he is working with Zealous Analytics, who does work on the outside, a lot of work with the tracking data, does consulting with different NFL teams and a bunch of other different sports there. And it's good to talk to someone who was on the inside, but is now uh, on the outside. They can be a little bit more freer with what they discuss. We get into a big discussion, a great discussion about some macro issues on defining who you want to be as a team, uh, who you want to be as a franchise, and then executing on that from really a macro level as opposed to focusing on a lot of the day-to-day stuff. Although we do get into uh, some discussions around the draft, some discussions around quarterback value, some discussions around how you operate uh, within those parameters. But we stay away from the whether running backs matter or not and those sorts of topics, which I'm sure everyone is getting plenty, if not too much, from the old, uh, the old Twitter bot when you're on there talking about these things. So uh, I'm going to start off, though, by talking a little solo here about some, some issues that are going on. But before I get into anything, just quickly hit the fact that uh, PFF, if you're not listening to other PFF podcasts here, I'm going to give a little shout out to what's going on here. Uh, we have the two for one drafts podcast, which is dealing with, uh, not only the guys who are entering the league, but then also looking forward to the new college season and what's going to go on there. We have the PFF forecast, which is really focused on not only the analytical side of things as is this podcast, but then looking at betting angles a little bit more detailed, the Chris Collinsworth podcast, the fantasy football podcast, fantasy football is probably a big thing for this audience and a big thing that I focus on with the different work I do there. So make sure everyone is listening to all of these different podcasts. Okay, let's get into Aaron Rodgers first. So um, A-Rod, A-Rodge, do they call him A-Rodge? Um, he is coming to camp. Now, <clears throat> if you tune back, um, I don't know how many episodes, I guess it must be at least eight episodes back because it was something that I was discussing in May. I put out there a little bit of an overstated title, but I think it was fairly accurate where I said that Aaron Rodgers had no leverage. And the discussion went into the differences between the NFL and the NBA when it comes to players actually having the ability to ship themselves out of town with trade requests. And the way things played out fell in line pretty much with how I suspected they were. Now, the Packers did give, I'm going to put quotes here, quote unquote, um, concessions on this where they voided out the last year of the contract. There were three years remaining counting this season on Rogers' contract. So now it's just this season and next season. And in doing so, they don't ensure, it doesn't ensure that Rodgers will be traded after the 2021 season. But if they don't trade him, he'd only have one more year left on the contract. There, I believe, is a clause where he cannot be franchised because of that void year after that. So they wouldn't be able to franchise him. So they would risk getting no trade compensation if they really, really held firm and decided they wanted to keep Rodgers for the 2022 season. But again, that is their right. So they did not give up the right to do that. They did not give up the right also to get trade compensation for him at the end of next season. And when we look at the timing here, I think the reason it wasn't really that much of concession on the part of the Packers is a confluence of different things that are coming in next week. Now, when Jordan Love was originally drafted in the 2020 draft, when you're looking out at when was it realistic 
that love could end up playing, right? When was that a realistic thing that could end up happening? I think most people under the old contract, which doesn't really change that much with the new contract, the cash flows are the same, everything else is just a void year attached to the end. Um, when people were looking at the contract, most people pointed to the 2022 off season. So after this season, because at that point in time, looking at our friends over the camp here, uh, what would happen is if they would have traded him this season, they would have only had 5.6 cap savings and the dead cap would have been uh, over 31 million. Next season, they're going to save around 23 million in, in, in cap and um, their dead cap is only, well, only, I put only in quotes here, uh, uh, 17, 17.2 million. So it's still, it's still significant, right? It's a significant amount. But the way they've been able to restructure that is that is palatable to do it at that point. Um, and, you know, Rogers is 38 years old. He's going to turn 39 this season. So it'll be a 39-year-old who's leaving. So all in all, not the worst possible outcome for the Packers and probably a pretty good outcome for, for the Packers. So they can say they can move on to it from that point. They can get multiple draft picks. They can decide whether or not Jordan Love is that guy. They've had two years to really take a look at him. Or they can use those picks uh, along with their own first round pick, maybe to move up in the draft and see if they can get a quarterback or find a quarterback who may be available on the open market. There are going to be some guys most likely out there like Jimmy Garoppolo um, is definitely is definitely one. Russell Wilson, who knows, could be out there on the market, although he hasn't said that the Packers are one of his preferred destinations. But there are a bunch of guys who could potentially be out there. So I think the Packers moving on from Aaron Rodgers at the end of next season makes sense. Now, the, the, what I really want to talk about here is the bigger point on what the Packers are doing with other contracts, because we've seen some dissatisfaction with Devontae Adams. And I think we really have to look at Adams versus what they did with David Bakhtiari. And I think those decisions reveal a lot about what the front office is thinking. I mean, first off, the Packers are about $30 million plus over the cap next year. So Rogers is going to give him some relief. He's going to give him over $20 million of relief. So there's something there. But I also think that was an issue in looking at the Adams contract and what they were going to do there. Now, Bakhtiari's deal was one year earlier. So this is the 2021 season is the last year of Adams deal. The 2020 season would have been the last year of Bakhtiari's deal. And that's when they extended him there. They are about the same age. They're both 29 going into the last year of their deals. Um, but they haven't done the same for Adams. And the question is why they may not do that. I think there are two big factors. One is ideally they probably would like to do a franchise and extend next season because they can really, really lower that cap in the 2022 season. That's the season where they're going to have the cap crunch. Um, they can put a very minimal you know, P5 salary there. They can have a big, big signing bonus, which will amortize over the course of, of years. So they don't have to worry about it being too much upfront and they can get that cap number a lot lower in that first season. If they do the extension now, they would get the cap number very low this season, but they probably would prefer to have that next season and going forward. The second point, and again, I'm not in the Packers heads, so I can't say exactly if this is why they are doing it or not. But the second point is maybe they have a different opinion about the tackle position versus the wide receiver position, not only from a value perspective, but from an aging perspective. Now, remember, both of these players are 29 going into this contract, Bakhtiari and Adams. So this is a third contract type of player. 
they are probably thinking, and we have data that I'm going to talk about that backs up this thinking. The Packers are probably thinking it's more likely that Bakhtiari is going to be playing at an elite level into his early 30s and maybe even beyond than Devontae Adams. So I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that they try a franchise tag and trade next season too, if they wanted to go there uh, with Adams, if they want even more picks for, for this rebuild. Because like I said, Adams will be going into his age 30 uh, season next year. Now, um, some research that's been done by the great Timo Risque here at PFF, he looked at the percentage of war generated over careers by different position types. And if you're looking at 30 and older, so players when they hit into their 30s, what is who, who the biggest percentage of war that comes during that time period? Uh, quarterbacks, number one, right? So quarterbacks age very slowly. There's no doubt about that. Everyone kind of knows now that that's happening and they can perform well into their mid to now even late 30s or early 40s if we're talking about Tom Brady. So that's, that's obvious. That's a different category. But the rest of the players, the next position that has the highest percentage of war generated beyond the age of 30 is the offensive tackle. So knowing that, you'd be more comfortable saying we're going to give this extension to Bakhtiari. Uh, I mean, think about just anecdotally, if you want to mention some names here, Jason Peters was playing very well into his mid to late 30s. He's 39 now. He's kind of, he's fallen off right at this point, but only recently. Uh, we have Andrew Whitworth who turns 40 this season. So he was playing very well through there. Dwayne Brown is 35 and he's been playing at a high level in his thirties there. Trent Williams was made the highest paid tackle in the NFL at 33 years old. You're not going to see that on the wide receiver side of the equation. Look at Julio Jones, a hall of fame caliber player who from an efficiency perspective, wasn't very bad, even though he missed some time last season and the previous seasons, he wasn't missing much time. He was playing at a high, high level. There's been no on-field decline in his play. Uh, if you do not think that the injuries are part of his aging, which I think it's hard to make the case that it definitely is part of the aging, then there really hasn't been that much of a decline in his play. But yet, look at what happened in the trade market, right? If you look at uh, Julio Jones, not only was he probably not the type of guy who's going to be made the the highest paid receiver in the league right now uh, but he was a guy who said we're going to send Julio in a sixth round pick and then get a second round and a fourth round pick in a, in a future year back from the Titans not that much trade not that much trade compensation right for a player as a hall of fame caliber player who's 32 years old so a little bit older than Bakhtiari but still he's in that mix where we've seen a lot of these offensive tackles who have been able to perform extremely well for many years beyond that, not that much was willing to be given up for Julio Jones. So I think it may not just be the Packers that view a difference between these positions, but the league generally. And if the Packers are starting a rebuild post Rogers era, while there's some chance Jordan Love steps in and they're immediately competing, they have the cap problems next season. They have the new quarterback. It might take a little bit more time to, to ramp up. They're probably going to lose players like Zadarius Smith, who they're going to let go to, sit, to have some cap space. So they're not going to be putting necessarily the highest level of talent on the field because of the crunch that they have across the board. Now, by the time that they start to turn things around and really are able to put that roster together uh, at an optimal level to compete in 2023, 
2024. Now we're getting into seasons where Adams is going to be, you know, he's, he's going to be 31, 32 years old. He's starting to get to that same age as uh, Julio Jones. And, you know, in my opinion, not the, not close to the caliber of player of Julio Jones, although he may be one of the best receivers in the league right now. He's just a different type of type of player, right? Um, that maybe they're saying, hey, this could be the right move for us to load up on picks or uh, next year as part of a sign and trade. So I would look out for that. I would look, I mean, tag and trade. I would look out for a tag and trade there and the way that they're timing that rebuilding. So I think that's what we have to look forward to for Packers fans is to say, didn't give up that much with Aaron Rodgers, going to likely trade him before the draft next year, get some draft capital, and also potentially move on from Adams. And that preference is revealing itself. And I think it's a somewhat smart move by the Packers to say the offensive tackle is a prioritized position with the salaries going up much so at that position with the difficulty in finding that position in the draft versus receivers we've seen hit in the second or or third round of the NFL draft. All of those different things are saying, despite a potential coming rebuild, we're going to hang on to Bakhtiari and maybe not prioritize Adams quite so much. Okay, before we get on to the last segment uh, pre-interview, I just want to hit another ad here, and this is for Western and Southern. Western and Southern uh, is a life insurance company, uh, also does annuities and other type of investments. Uh, and in these uncertain times, life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement and investments, compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, last thing I want to hit on here uh, before we get into the interview is the COVID rules. I know this is a fraught topic. Uh, I don't want to get too much into the honestly, the politics of it at this point. But I do want to discuss what the NFL and the NFLPA, the Players Association, have done with this new announcement that caused a stir last week when they announced that if a game is missed due to a breakout, which they can trace back somehow to unvaccinated players, that... All of the players in the game, both sides, even the team that's going to play them, all those players will not get paid and ownership or the franchises will have to also reimburse for the money lost um, associated with everything else, TV contracts, all that sort of stuff. So very big financial penalties for a missed game due to a outbreak from unvaccinated players. Now, I think a lot of the things that we've seen with the rules have been overblown as far as how much they're trying to quote unquote punish the unvaccinated players for not being vaccinated because it is a carryover from the rules that were established for a two year window. They established these COVID rules and the NFLPA agreed on it last year where they like the testing regime, for instance, that players and the protocols that unvaccinated players are going to have to adhere to this season it's not really a punishment that they're imposing because these are just the same rules that they're going to have to adhere to. But then vaccinated players based upon a credible argument based upon the science behind their ability to spread 
and their, you know, danger for getting sick and all those sorts of things, those players do not have to adhere to as strong of protocols has been moved down. So I think you can make some sense there. You can also make some sense from the fact that this is a move as <clears throat> from the NFLPA, from a players association standpoint, that we're trying to protect all our players. So we're going to try to help protect the unvaccinated players from getting sick by having these stiffer protocols. Remember, these were protocols that the players wanted last year. Players wanted to be tested every day. Players wanted these stricter protocols to protect them. So we're going to keep those in place for protection of those players and also protection of the vaccinated players. So I don't have a problem with any of that. Now, I am pro-vaccination. I think that there's probably even an argument for a potential mandate here. But I think what we're seeing with the new discussion and the uproar around it is the wrong way to approach this by the NFL because what, what they're doing is they're transferring some of the costs of imposing a vaccination mandate, uh, the cost being not only reputational costs, not only outrage on the part of the, the players, not only potential concessions they would have to give up to get the NFLPA to agree to, the, to, to doing that, um, legal problems in the future by mandating a vaccine, which as of now does not have full FDA approval. It has emergency authorization from the FDA. So they're, they're transferring a lot of those costs that they would have to do in order to get this, this mandate. And they're trying to get a de facto mandate by transferring these costs onto the players. And not just onto the unvaccinated players, as I mentioned before, also potentially onto the vaccinated players. Now, I think a lot of this is overhyped because we saw last season how the NFL did a lot to make sure every game was played. I think they'll continue to do this this year, whether it's an outbreak that happens from a vaccinated players or from unvaccinated players. I think the NFL is going to try to make sure every game is played. They're not leaving money on the sideline. So I think some of this is really... Uh, uh, a threat that's a little bit of an idle threat. But even saying that, it's having a reaction and it's causing costs within these teams where now there are conflict amongst players. You're pitting the unvaccinated players against the vaccinated players in some ways. And I get from a perspective of the ends justify the means, but I think this is unfair that you're saying there could be these costs not only for the unvaccinated players, but for the vaccinated players based upon uh, COVID outbreaks and we're going to make this differentiation. We're going to make this decision. We're going to say uh, the unvaccinated players cost you a ton of money and the vaccinated players don't. And by doing that, by imposing those financial burdens, they're making this more difficult, I think, for all the different players. And there's also this thing where there's just a lot of randomness in this. So I don't like the financial, the threat of financial penalties because if one team, let's say, has 90% players who were vaccinated. Another team has 95% players who were vaccinated. Yeah, the team with 90% is more likely to have an unvaccinated outbreak, but these are random events, right? You see about these super spreader events, and we've seen things that are similar to super spreader type events, even with vaccinated people, right? Where a bunch of vaccinated people are getting infected. So there's just a, such a random component to this that when we end up looking at teams that have outbreaks, we tend to blame them for what they've done or blame them for not having enough vaccinated players. This season is what's going to happen when reality is there's a lot of just luck that comes into play here. So again, you're transferring the risk associated with this luck to vaccinated players who have done 
in my opinion, have done everything the right way. Um, and you're putting that on them rather than going through the true means of trying to get a mandate for players to get vaccinated. So then everyone could be not only more protected, but there would not be these financial ramifications hanging out there and these unfair costs and burdens that are being put on the players. So I would try to find a way of doing that. And I would not approach this from a means of, you know, good, we should just be doing whatever we can to get people vaccinated, no matter who the costs fall on. I think it's important that we do this in a fair way. I think it's important that the NFL and the players and the players association doesn't weasel out and, and put this burden on players who have done everything right, the vaccinated players. A couple of quick ads here before we get into the interview portion of the podcast. Uh, Fantrax. Fantrax is the NFL Fantasy Football League manager that is most customizable, easy to use, a rich feature platform in PFF team here. The fantasy football team is gearing up to play leagues on Fantrax this season. It allows lots of different features here. You can do multi-team trades. You can auto-generate player salaries for your league. You can bring that extra element as far as the salaries are concerned there and management is concerned there. Whatever league you're in, you can customize it exactly the way you want. If you're coming from another site, that's no problem. Fantrax, you can import your current leagues right into there, your dynasty leagues. Sign up and play now at Fantrax.com slash PFF and get a chance to win an autographed jersey from Josh Allen, our man, Josh Allen. Um, that is fantrax.com slash PFF, the home of fantasy sports. And the last ad read here, it's for, you probably heard this before. If you've been listening to a lot of podcasts, it's for Manscaped. Now I was a little hesitant, honestly, going in here. Um, but support for PFF is brought to you by Manscaped, the best men's below the waist grooming champions of the world. And they sent me some product. I don't know how I feel about the manscaping quite honestly going forward. But what they did have is uh, this product, uh, the Weed Whacker. I'm not sure. I think it might've been a 2.0. You know, they have different .0s for these different things. Um, and that is for the nose and the ears. So as an old man, and I, I'm an old man, I'm married, I got kids. The, the, the grooming may not, you know, down there, but up here, you know, some hairs start growing in some weird places, even for people like me who are not the hairiest individuals. Um, so having that was, uh, was helpful. I used it. It worked great. And uh, let me just say that for beyond that, though, for those who are, who are looking for, for, for down there, uh, Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Uh, Manscaped just lost their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Notice Lawnmower, Weed Whacker, kind of got a, a theme going on here. Join the over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you, 20% off, 20% off, and free worldwide shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. Uh, did I mention wireless charging? There's new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help keep the battery length longer. Hmm, not bad. Uh, required. So this is it here. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free, sh free shipping at manscaped.com and use promo code PFF. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. And now my interview with Kevin Mears. Welcome to the show, Kevin Mears. Kevin is a football strategy fellow at I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a guess here. I'm going to say Zelus Analytics. I'll let you correct me on that in a second to, to get that right or not. But he was also uh, spent a lot of time with the Browns. He was there for almost seven years, four of those years as the director of 
research and strategy. Thank you for joining me, Kevin. Great to be here. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, and you were you were so close, uh, zealous analytics. So exactly like the word, but just we messed with the spelling. Yeah, I didn't know. Like, I'm trying to throw like maybe some Greek thing in there or something, and just messing it up. So yeah, so I was trying there, but uh, again, uh, close, but not quite there. But the reason that I reached out to you about coming on the show, um, I had on the show about a month ago, I would say, uh, Dave Giuliani, who you worked with for the Browns, who is now filled in your your shoes there, your very large shoes, I'll say, uh, at, at the Browns there. So now we're going, kind of had the, the ghost of Browns present, and now we're going to the ghost of Browns past. And as great as Dave was in that interview, and he was great, we got great feedback on that. It's always good to have perspective from people who, you know, were in the NFL and now out of, out of the NFL uh, I think it probably gave you some perspective, be able to look at it both ways. And of course, you know, from a strategy, you want to be a little careful what you're saying when you're on the inside. I'm sure you still want to be a little bit careful about what you're saying on the outside, but there are some other things that you can probably discuss going backwards that he didn't want to discuss a little bit as part of that interview. That's all sounds about right. I would just say that Dave's shoes are much faster than mine. Uh, he was uh, a college baseball player and, um, one year, I think it was during training camp or maybe like uh, spring mini camp, we had uh, the entire front office run 40 yard dash times and he absolutely blew me away. Okay, well, yeah. So uh, according to people who just want to say 40 yard dash time is analytics, I guess he's the he's the analytics <laughs> analytics guy then, right? Uh, I remember there was a comment the other day in the GM summit, I want to say the Ozzie Newsome GM summit where they're talking about drafting players and um God, it escapes me now who, who was the, the GM, but someone was saying, you know, I don't, I don't just draft a player based upon analytics. So I can never quite figure out what that means, but maybe we'll get into some of that concepts, this idea of it being like the separate entity, maybe even a boogeyman in, in some circumstances. But what was really helpful in our discussion going into this is, you know, I had some topics for you and then you came back with me and kind of did my job much better than I could talking about from a higher level, how you want to talk about these things from a strategic standpoint. And I think that's really important because it's not what you're going to hear a lot here. You know, we don't necessarily need to uh, talk about the, 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 the matteringness of running backs for the five billionth time or talk about, you know, whether or not analytics is a tool in the toolbox sort of situation for, for the hundredth time here. So I know that you have a little bit of this organizational strategy talk that you want to talk about. Um, so why don't we kind of dive into that? And then as we're talking, I can get back to you with, with context and additional questions that, that we may have here. So let, let's talk about that from a higher level, because I think the Browns are probably somewhat unique um, in how they set things up because they have Paul DePodesta, who was the chief strategy officer reporting directly to, to the owner. So there may be a little bit more of an overall thing there with analytics, but what, why don't you just talk to me quickly you know, when you hear the discussion about analytics, what are the problems there? How do you like to think about these things from a strategic standpoint? Yeah, so great questions. Um, I think a lot of the times, like you said, analytics can kind of get pigeonholed into being a tool in the toolbox. And it, and it is a tool in the toolbox. And it's, and it's important for it not to kind of be siloed away in its own thing. It's important for it to be integrated into how... Uh, others in the organization are approaching the problems that they confront every day. Um, but one of the most powerful places that analytics can play a role, or maybe like another way of saying that it can be integrated into these other divisions of the organization is to really have 
analytics inform the overall strategy of the organization um, and having the organization uh, be data-driven and uh, have the philosophy be that we are going to make decisions based off of uh, empiricism is a really powerful tool. And uh, a lot of times analytics gets focused more at like the tactical level of like, which player should we pick or should we make this trade rather than kind of a level up from that at the strategy level to say, what kinds of decisions should we be making and how should we be making those decisions? Which is, uh, in my view, where analytics can have even more of an impact. Well, we'll walk through some of the particulars of that. And I think that's, that's an interesting point because at least from the outside, we look at some of these organizations and especially we're talking about ownership here. Cause I think ownership ultimately like the, the buck stops at ownership. There's a lot of control there. And I think often we see some owners who within their given industry where they've, you know, made tons of money uh, for those who have, um, you know, it's very highly regulated. There's probably a hierarchical structure, you know, boards involved, things like that come involved. And then when you get to, to football, it's a little bit more at the whim, I would say, of, of you know, how the owner may be thinking about things, how the structures are, things get turned over a little bit more. There's this push and pull of what fans are thinking, what the media is saying, what other things are, are going on that you can get pulled in all these different directions. So is, is that kind of part of what you're saying about is maybe making the NFL franchise a little bit more formalized or is it go, does it go deeper than that? No, well, I think you're, you're, points a good one like the the capital structure of nfl teams is very odd it's like um i guess most most large companies there are obviously plenty of companies that are just owned uh, outright by one family but um especially companies that are under a lot of public scrutiny a lot of those are like publicly traded organizations with boards and like lots of um people who uh, can get really mad at leadership and institute a change and uh, can exert market pressure on how the organization is behaving. And in the NFL, like teams are really immune from a lot of those kinds of pressures because it really is just up to like one family who is normally like quite wealthy and isn't necessarily confirmed uh, or sorry, isn't necessarily that concerned with the profit and loss of the team. Um, and so that leaves teams kind of more up to the idiosyncratic desires of uh, those owners. Um, and that can cause some issues when thinking like downstream from that, um, when you don't have the same kind of pressure applied to uh, squeeze every penny of profit out of your team, or in this case, wins out of your team, uh, that'll just allow space for um inefficiencies to creep in. And uh, what analytics can do is point out those inefficiencies and help teams run much more efficiently. Okay. So let's say you were sitting down with a, I don't know, a new owner of an NFL franchise. How would you present this issue to them to think about, you know, it sounds good, you know, use analytics, be better, you know, it's a sort of way, be, be more efficient, you know, there you go. We're done, you know, end of meeting. But like, how, how do we practically move forward with this? So I guess zooming back out, I think it's really important for teams to, especially if you're talking about like this mythical 33rd NFL franchise, right. um, I guess like the Kraken will have gotten to actually do this, which is incredibly cool, but to actually like take a step back from uh, the day-to-day pressures that are on the team and ask like, what strategy do we want to pursue? 
um, and strategy often talked about rarely defined. Um, and so I would uh, borrow the definition uh, that I've learned, um, which is uh, strategy is an integrated set of choices that positions an organization within its environment to achieve its vision over the long term. And a lot of teams don't take that step back to define any one of those things that goes into that definition. Um, many teams don't really think much about their vision um, or let alone how they're going to achieve it, let alone how they're going to achieve it in the most efficient way possible. Um, a lot, I kind of, at least publicly, a lot of the messaging is we're going to contend to win a Super Bowl and we're going to do that every year by having the best players and coaches. Um, and strategy executed properly means that you're choosing specifically not to do some things because it means that you are choosing to do other things. There are these trade-offs that are involved uh, that teams rarely really want to consider because most, most decision makers don't like the idea that they can't do everything. Um, but it really key to strategy is that you can't do everything. You have to choose to do some things really well. Um, and that's not a compromise that, uh, that, in my view, NFL teams are willing to make that often. Okay, well, let's let, let's talk about a couple of things that may be competing the most. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll posit a guess here. I don't know. You probably have a lot of insider knowledge. But something that I see from the outside a bit is there are certain people who frame every decision in, let's say, ma- probability maximization of winning a Super Bowl as opposed to competing, right? And sometimes I think... If you want to go that route, maybe that's something you can do. But then we get into discussions of, for instance, with a lot of like the quarterback extension talk, they say, you know what, this guy is not going to be an elite quarterback. So just let him go and then find another elite quarterback because you're going to, and that's, but at the same time, does that really what an NFL franchise wants to do is open up the possibility to being in the quarterback wasteland for who knows how many years, uh, because there's only going to be a few decisions you're going to make down the road that if they happen to all go wrong, which can happen, right? There's a significant chance of that happening no matter how good your process is. You could be stuck without a winning franchise for a decade or something like that. It's not likely, but it can happen. So maybe like taking that floor risk off of the table is important. Are these the type of things you're talking about or does it go way beyond that? No, those are exactly the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Um, And there isn't a right answer to them. I think that's important to point out. It really comes down to like, what is the preference of the owner and the fan base? Like there are, um, I think there are like plenty of teams who uh, in other sports where uh, there isn't a salary cap and spending patterns are like very, very different um, where teams kind of have to understand that it's very unlikely that they are going to win the championship. Um, particularly in like European sports where like literally some teams are backed by the entire like country that owns the team, the sovereign wealth fund. Um, and so the rest of the, the rest of the sport has to adapt to that. Um, and so bringing, bring that back to the NFL, um, man, totally lost my train of thought. No, I, I understand. So you're saying like the NFL yeah. isn't quite like, maybe how some people think of baseball though there's more randomness in baseball with the salary cap with everything else. So there is like legitimate yes. chance to compete for every team for a Super Bowl in the NFL. Yeah, exactly. Um, but having that conversation about like, would we rather win nine games forever or would we rather win a Super Bowl uh, once and then win four games forever? 
like those kinds of conversations are really important um, because that's really affecting like how, how the organization is going to go about executing all of the decisions it's going to make uh, without a clear understanding of like what the actual goals are on the field in terms of wins and losses or playoff berths, however you want to measure it. Um, it's really hard for a front office to execute correctly because they don't really know what they're aiming for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw a poll that was being conducted. I mean, you know, very scientific. It was like a Twitter poll about whether or not uh, as a fan, you would want your team to win one Super Bowl, but then, you know, miss the playoffs X number of years, or you'd want your team to make the playoffs every year and not win a Super Bowl. And I was surprised by how many people said they would, they would want option A, that they would want to win the Super Bowl, but then whatever happens, it happens. And I don't know if this is true of, people generally and also true of, of ownership. But my concern about some of the talk before you really get into this is you say to someone, what do you want to do? And you know, you got your chest puffed out. You're like, well, I want to win a Super Bowl. You know, I want to win a Super Bowl. And then two years into um, you know, some difficulties uh, with the, especially when the NFL, I think it's easier in some other sports where the spotlight isn't quite as high, where there isn't like a, a game by game undulations of the fan base and everything else that's going on. I think maybe the longer ownership is in place, they could say, you know what? I know I said I want to win championships, but I don't want to like go through the down cycles here also. And I, I now I kind of realize, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a, there's yeah. a, some people may not even know what they want, what they really want, because it sounds good to have that Super Bowl. Absolutely. And it's also something that's really hard to measure empirically. Like teams don't have a great visual or don't have great access to information on other teams attendance or other teams um, like revenues. And so it's hard to track like what is the relationship between wins and fan engagement, um, especially over a long period of time. Um, But yeah, the example that you're uh, bringing up over, we want to both contend and uh, never have a sustained period um, without or below 500, let's say. Um, I think something close to that was um, like Daryl Morey's mandate in Houston. Um, And like even that's a hard mandate, but it also is very helpful because it takes some of the choices off the table for the front office. If you know that you can't bottom out and go um, and lean into the process like the 76ers did, um, that means you have to start pursuing other patterns of decisions. Um, And even a really hard mandate is a really helpful one. Yeah, but okay, even in that circumstance, does that mean that you are at best delaying the hard bottom, but it's eventually going to come anyway, in a way, I'm trying to think of certain situations. I mean, maybe the Rockets, it was really at the end of, of Moray's time there that he was, you know, willing to throw three first round picks for anybody, basically, to, to, to try to really get over the top. And maybe that was a shift in priority. Maybe that was a shift towards winning a title, um, especially having come so close the year that they went to seven games and they missed three million threes in a row to, to, to lose the game that they were so close there. Maybe that was part of the mandate, but I see it sometimes in the NFL. I mean, to bring up teams like maybe what the Rams are doing, where they're just kind of mortgaging these first round picks and continuing to push in over and over again. At some point, there's kind of like a natural end to that, to that cycle. Um, even for the Patriots, even if you have Tom Brady, there's a natural end for, from the cycle, but they were, and they weren't even pushing in, I would say as hard as other teams. Yeah, I mean, the, the Saints come up as, a, for me, as a, a team that uh, very frequently moves 
assets from the future into today, into today and is constantly trying to rejigger their cap situation. Um, and that's given them a lot of success. Um, and we'll see if they're able to, I guess, one way to think about it is in terms of budget constraints. And so if you're borrowing a lot of money from the future, um, your budget's going to be a lot narrower uh, when you get to the future, but you can still do your can what you can to uh, fit a good amount of performance into that narrower budget constraint. I think the place that is trickiest to balance is uh, when you have a group of players who are very good um, and you feel really good that you're going to win between um, I hate the new 17 game schedule. So I'm just going to report yeah, that. Let's say you're going to win between like nine and 11 games. Um, you feel good that you're going to win between nine and 11 games over the next few years. You're going to make the playoffs like 75% of the time. Is that enough? Um, or do you want to try to do something that's going to create a step change and make you a contender? Um, and I think that's, that's a really hard problem to solve. Well, how should we think about, the the make the playoffs problem. I mean, I remember famously um, when we're talking about you know f- baseball and the the, the Moneyball revolution. It's it's kind of the randomness that I mentioned in baseball. It's kind of like you try to make it to the playoffs, especially in the past where there were even fewer teams making the playoffs. You try to make it to the playoffs, and then it's kind of like all bets are off at that point to a degree because of the the randomness there. Now in the NFL, um, well, we only have one buy now, so that that does maybe like r- increase the the randomness of, of if you can't get into that buy, like building a team to get that buy every year is maybe an unrealistic goal in some in some ways because it's because it's so difficult to do. But you, you'd want to do that, right? But how much in the NFL should teams be thinking about? Hey, maybe we can you know Eli our way to a couple of championships, which is probably the, the main example of a team that is kind of in that mediocre, right? So they had, they had Eli, they were never going to be a, a first round by type of team, probably with that, unless everything else goes right, but yet they, they got two championships. So can it be worth it even from a championship perspective, just to get to the dance every, every year and see what happens? Yeah. I, from my personal perspective, um, I guess I wouldn't quite say the goal is to Eli it, but um, I think that, putting yourself in position to get lucky a lot of times is like a much better strategy than just, I am either going to be the Kansas city chiefs or busts, or I'm going to be the Brady Patriots or busts. Um, Yeah. Because of the randomness, both involved in the playoff structure and just the randomness of the future. It's really, really hard to say uh, like three years from now, without a doubt, we are going to be better than the Kansas city chiefs and be the odds on favorites to win the super bowl. Uh, like building a team that's uh, going to have a sustainable period um, to contend and make the playoffs like five, six years in a row. Now you're giving yourself a real, a real chance in the tournament each year, even though there, you know, some teams are obviously more heavy favorite than others, but man, it's really hard to predict which ones those are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of another hypothetical um, that maybe is, can help illustrate some of these, some of this thinking a little bit. So like what you're saying about some of these points is, okay, define your organizational strategy. So figure out what you want to do. Make sure you're laser focused on that. You're kind of unapologetic in executing that strategy, but um, I'm always going to throw the butts in here for everything. Uh, 
if you, you know, you, like you said, things happen that are outside of your control, right? So, so let's say you ha- you have a team, you say, you know what, we're going to do this championship or not championship or bust because that sounds ridiculous, but you know, we're, we're going to try to go for that high end outcome type of type of team. And then you set yourself up to try to get the, the top quarterback, you, you get someone, you build the rest of the team. So they're, they're fairly good around the quarterback. The quarterback looks like probability wise, like, yes, there's some chance they'll be elite, but they won't. And I think this is kind of like the situation of a lot of teams out there. Isn't it difficult at that point, not to, you know, reassess and say, you know, we're, we're at a different situation now than we were when we started. When we started, if, if we're a bottoming out team, let's say we're the Browns in 2016, we're the Dolphins in 2018, we're the Philadelphia 76ers. Like things have happened since then. So the attractiveness of the the boomer bus team is a little bit higher when you're already in that that you know the, the nadir of the cycle. But now that you're in this other place, is that is that a point where you would you would suggest to reassess, or do you think it's important if you have that strategy to plow forward with this new information as opposed to the lure of then saying, you know what, we're going to switch and be conservative now at this point? So I think there are two different questions in there. Right. Uh, the first one is to ask, like, has our, has the organization's preference set changed? Like from when we were, from when we were terrible, now we're like a solid team. Now that we're here, are we actually okay with that? Like, are we pretty, are we happy with where we are and we're happy, uh, you know, competing against every team every week? We have a shot at making the playoffs. Is this, is this a place that we uh, feel good about? Um, or, are we, or have we maintained our preferences that we defined, you know, however many years ago of like, we want to be the odds on favorite to win the Super Bowl, And given our current roster, that's not going to be a thing. And so we want to shake things up and make a dramatic change. I think that's question one. And question two on like the, how do we execute against that preference set? Um, that's something that has to continually adapt um, and continually has to respond to the environment that you find yourself in. Um, I think every, every season, but it feels like in particular the last few years, um, really marquee players have become available in ways that don't feel like they should normally be happening. Um, and so it's really important for teams to, especially if a team is trying to get to that level of contention, to leave themselves kind of like dry ammo uh, so that when those situations arise, they can capitalize on them. And those aren't things that you're going to be able to know a year or two, year or two ahead that, Hey, this great player is going to become available and we're planning on that. Uh, but you can plan that like something crazy is going to happen in the future. And we want to be able to capitalize on whatever it is at the time. Yeah. I think teams are a little bit more comfortable um, like with dead money. They're probably a little more comfortable with dead money or, or moving on, maybe. I've seen that. I mean, I remember when Antonio Brown was traded. I just didn't think that was going to happen. Now, obviously, there were circumstances there that were a little bit, a little bit bigger than, than what was going on there. Um, but you, you know, with Wentz and with Goff and with others, you know, teams are are pivoting and moving, moving away. Now, I, I, I have trouble having this discussion where I'm not focusing too much on the quarterback, right? And it's probably a blind spot of a bit of the public conversation is, is that focus on the quarterback at the same time, like how much is it really about, do you have that quarterback or not in your opinion, as far as raising that uh, ceiling outcome? 
Yeah, I think it's important to define both like what you mean by that quarterback and what the like ceiling outcome is. And I think, I think a lot, I think a lot of the, no, but I I bring that up to say, like, I think a lot of the conversation comes from having unclear definitions of those two things. Um, And also kind of waving hands around the idea that, well, it's possible. It's like, of course, like it's possible. The Jaguars went to a championship game uh, without, great quarterback play the Denver Broncos with Peyton Manning won a Super Bowl without great quarterback play like it is possible um but are you actually maximizing your odds of those things happening that's that's a different question um where I usually come out on it is like if you want if you're thinking of sustained success as making the playoffs at least like three out of four years for for a four-year plus period um, doing that without a top 12 quarterback is really, really hard to do. Um, teams can do that over a shorter period of time by putting a great supporting cast around a quarterback and having um, supportive coaching staffs who know how to use those players most effectively. Um, those things can, can help you maintain the kind of that model for, a year or two, um, but they're much harder to sustain because they involve so many more moving parts. And so the odds that any one of those pieces is going to fall away or just a player is going to get older and age and no longer perform the way um, that he did a year or two ago, all that just becomes more and more likely the more and more pieces uh, you need to put around the quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Okay, because this this quarterback question is, like I said, Goff was definitely someone who got a lot of uh, talk about, at least in some quarters, about whether or not the Rams should move on. And we're talking about, you know, Super Bowl, uh, at least going to the Super Bowl quarterbacks. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo, right? Like the the, the 49ers really did make that move. Now, in the coming year, we're going to have, you know, Baker for the Browns. Uh, Josh Allen's probably not in that bucket of people talking about moving away from. There's probably some fringe people that talk about moving away from Lamar Jackson, but I don't know about that, but even so, you know, going, it's going to continue. It's going to continue. It's going to be Kyler has been, uh, you know, uh, Daniel Jones has been whatever Daniel Jones has been. We'll, we'll find out about these guys. So I guess that would really be the question though, right? Cause that's almost the defining, the defining part for, for a quarterback is like beyond this rookie contract, what do we know about them? What should we be willing to do? And is the, is the choice of moving on or not, is that maybe a little too simplistic? And are there ways to say we're going to extend, but leave ourselves more open than maybe traditionally we haven't seen in the past, like a third way? Yeah. I mean, I think you've, you've raised this in earlier episodes, but it, it is important to, even if you've committed a lot of money to a player um, at any position, but especially a quarterback to like, always be open to the possibility that um, something better could come along. Um, And that's a very difficult um, balance to strike um, because there's so much of the organization goes into the quarterback and so much of the thinking goes into, to maximizing that quarterback's play. Um, And so if there, if there is a third way of, um, kind of locking in a solid level of quarterback performance while leaving yourself the flexibility to continue to take shots and trying to uh, find the next Peyton Manning. Um, 
that's a really nice balance to strike. Um, but in some cases that can sound better in theory than in practice. Um, I mean, we've seen, we've obviously seen examples where, um, a team tries to walk that path and it ends up blowing up their quarterback room. Um, and so from an academic or outside perspective, like it sounds awesome in reality, it can be a really difficult balance to strike. Um, and so I think like there are teams that have kind of gotten a little lucky with being able to do that. Uh, like the Cowboys come to mind between like Tony Romo and then having Dak emerge right behind him. Um, but it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess I can figure out when we're talking about these two different organizational strategies, we can, I can figure out the, the implications maybe for whether you extend veteran talent. Uh, maybe you're more likely to let some players fall away if you're not quite at that point and you want to uh, rather than con- continue on the playoff streak, if you're in that sort of ways, but we're talking about other aspects uh, I mean, I think about the, the draft, for instance, like how would this framework color how you're looking at the draft? Does it come down to how individual players are evaluated? Does it come down to your, your strategy on moving up or down the board? Um, how, how do we, how would we think about that? Yeah. Uh, I guess all like all of the above, um, but <laughs> uh, most, I think the most clear impact would be um uh, the the process that you take to actually writing a player's name down on a card um like the like understanding i guess the, the strategy that i uh, would advocate for uh, for a lot of teams to pursue is um win win the passing game and if you if you focus all of your attention on winning the passing battle that's going to do a lot of good things for your team's future ability to win games and so if you're, if your focus is on winning the passing battle, the odds that you take a nose tackle in the first round, or you take a guard in the first round are pretty low. You need like a lot of justification, um, to do that, um, versus taking a quarterback receiver positions or players who have a much stronger impact on the passing game that totally aligns with what your organization is trying to do. Um, going back to like the time perspective, if your goal is to win a Super Bowl in the next two years, then of course you're going to trade up and try to um, maximize the value that you can get in this draft class versus if your goal is to win a hundred games in 10 years, then you're going to think a lot more about moving capital and spreading capital across all of that time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to talk about the passing game thing for, for a second. Cause I think yeah. this is probably one of the common, I don't know, like tension points between insights that may come from, you know, I'll, I'll put the quotes here, the quote unquote analytics sort of insights and the pushback that you'll get against it. And one of the things will be um, a flattening maybe of the complexity and nuance of the game. So saying something like, Concentrate on the passing game is saying, yeah, but, you know, you do that, then you don't have a good run defense, and then a team can do that, and you have to have these things covered. You know what I mean? It's kind of like there's always going to be pushback in, 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 in saying we're simplifying it too much, you're ignoring too much, you're not making it, uh, you know, rich enough as far as the analysis is concerned. In the same way that maybe people would have said that about three-point shooting in the NBA, yet in the NBA – you know, a, a 
a goal of saying, hey, let's shoot the three-pointer more was probably a pretty good just general strategy to, to have and then figure out like the, the, all the nuance and context and things like that. So uh, what about that sort of thing? That you're, I, I assume that that is a lot of trying to communicate these ideas is the fact that you're going to say do X and everyone's going to say, well, it's not that simple. Like life is not that simple. I'm sorry. You can't just say concentrate on the passing game and then uh, win Super Bowls. Yeah, so uh, life isn't that simple, but when it actually comes to making high pressure decisions, it can be really helpful to have some first principles to go back to and say, you know, sure, like there is, there is real nuance. There are real complicating factors that go in. Like um, Saquon Barkley comes to mind as someone who, you know, broke the mold in a lot of ways. And it's like, okay, well, we say we would like, uh, we say like we being the NFL analytics community say running backs don't matter. Um, but what about Saquon? Is that, is he someone that breaks the rule? And so the generational talent uh, principle. <laughs> yeah. The generational talent, but the real generational talent, right. not, the gener- <laughs> not the generational talent of this draft class. Yeah. Yeah. Not the um, early generational talent. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, having some principles to fall back to and remind yourself like, it is complicated, but we also do know some things. We have some pillars that we can rely on to provide the foundation for how we want to be making decisions is incredibly helpful um, because these decisions are really complicated. And so having, um, having frameworks that you can apply when you're under time pressure and the stakes are really high can help you from making um, particularly bad decisions. But how do we think about the degree and confidence of those frameworks? I mean, has there been anything that, uh, not necessarily needing specifics, but you know, certain you could have a, a particular framework which then changes. I mean, I think a famous example in, uh, I can think maybe in baseball a little bit more than some other sports was like catcher framing, right? So it was one of those things where I think the quote unquote analytics community thought that maybe catchers were overvalued according to the traditional way of looking at, at them. But then once we got better data on how they actually, how important framing was, then that made more sense. So how much, how much thinking is there there where you're saying I have this principle of maybe not something as simple as, 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 as running backs, but it, it doesn't really matter what the principle is, but, but I have this principle, but do I have to, think about how confident am I in that principle to start off with? And can I even know how confident that I am in that principle? Yeah. So if I can substitute the word uh, prior for principle, I think that may actually like uh, cause some lights to turn on uh, among the the statsy people in the audience. Um, I really like to think of like conventional wisdom as just like, the prior we have over these messy problems that we like have some data for, but you know, it's not perfect data and we definitely don't know everything about it. Um, And so it's important to like keep those things in mind um, and weigh the power of the evidence that you're bringing to bear on that question with how strongly you want to adjust that prior. Um, And so for like catcher framing, you know, we really didn't have the data to measure that for a long time. And so um, I'm not super familiar with like the, the long history of that debate, but uh, just speaking from my own experience, like it's very easy to get overconfident in the evidence that you do have right in front of you. And so adopting the frame of like, 
for, for me, adopting the frame of conventional wisdom as a prior that I am then updating based off of the evidence that I'm seeing is helpful. And sometimes the evidence is so, is so strong that you can wash away the prior, but other times it's something that you really do need to keep in mind. Now, when we say conventional wisdom, do we mean like conventional wisdom, uh, who's conventional wisdom, I guess, in a, in a point too, right? So that would be something where you could say the conventional wisdom of, I don't know, quote unquote, I, I hate using these like terms, analytics, but whatever, so of, of the analytics community versus the conventional wisdom of, um, you know, general football types and how they think about it. Um, I like markets as a good yeah. balance between those things um, where it's, it's easy for people to say, you know, all 53 players are equally important. But when you look at the salary breakdown of those players, that's not true. Um, and so when, when there are times where you can bring a market to bear and um, kind of use the pressure that is inherent within a market, um, that, that provides a helpful starting point. And so the, and that goes back perfectly into the catcher example where Catchers were being paid more than the stats thought they were. Uh, and it turns out there may have been good reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And maybe one other thing from an organizational perspective that I'm interested in, and it's probably a little bit different your environment versus what, what some other people may, may be working on, but I'm kind of, I'm interested in like what sort of impact can good research have within organizations um, depending upon the level of buy-in, whether from, from coaches or from GMs or for others, because I don't, to me, it kind of seems like if you don't have that at the very top, I'm not sure like how much it even matters. What, what, what's coming from below. So what, what's your, what's your feeling on that? Cause we're, we're seeing people being hired. We're seeing names, like whenever Seth Walder sends out his list, there's a bunch of names there. And then you're like, oh yeah, that, that team took, um, you know, a running back in the first round uh, as, as all these names are being added to it. So like, like how, how do we think about those two things versus each other? Yeah. So I think, again, that comes back to like kind of the separation between tactics and strategy. And without that, like buy-in at the highest levels, even like beyond the like GM, president of the team, whatever title you want to use, but really at like the ownership level, without buy-in there, it's really easy for analytics to get pushed down to the level of tactics and individual decisions and to really kind of get pushed to the side, even in those conversations. Um, it's great that we have more analysts joining teams. It's great that teams are going for some fourth downs more often, like those are all like real signs of progress and uh, the league learning about the value of data. Um, but I think we have a really long way to go. Yeah. I mean, even the, even the fourth down thing, um, I mean, I don't know the mechanism that's happening necessarily on this, but I think the Eagles and winning the Super Bowl and the fact that they were going for it more than others, you'd have seen at least an acceleration of a trend since, since that point. So then we get into this, you know, not, I want to say copycat league, but we get into like what is acceptable and what, and the acceptability comes from the results, right? So if you are trying to present someone, uh, present an idea to someone, like how do you weigh that sort of 
you know what, I'm going to like lean on this friendly result, I would say, because this is something I'm always, I mean, we struggle with it too. Like uh, well, even people in the public, we say like, oh, that's so ridiculous. You just showed like a clip of five plays. But then if we get a one result in our favor, we're like, oh, wait, wait, we, we did it. You know, like, look at this. Uh, we told you not, not to do that sort of thing. So how do you think about that? Because like it's like an ends to a means and, and, and I mean it's trying to like the means to an end in some situations with depending upon who you're dealing with yeah it's it's really tricky I think uh maybe a way of rephrasing the question is like stories are really powerful and stories right. can be much more convincing to people than data and so I, one tactic that we or that I've used as and relied on is telling a story that is actually data-driven or like here is the prototypical example for the big trend that we see, but here is the story of like where that trend came to bear. And so examples like the, the Eagles Super Bowl win are helpful because they give people some color and humans just like stories more than data. And so um, saying that like, this is the story and fourth downs played a, a really important part in it. And so when we think about fourth downs, we should think about the Eagle Super Bowl because that's what the data show, like, and coming back to like, that's what the data show. And here's an example and a story of what the data are showing rather than just throwing a chart um, can be really powerful. And in contrast, when there's just a story that the data don't support, then it's okay to say like, well, the data don't actually support that. That's just one story. And okay, another another factor that I wanted to talk about, and this is something where I'm not sure how much this takes place inside of, of organizations or not. But again, if you have this this group of Let's face it, these group of nerds, right? You got these nerds over here in the in the research department research department. I feel like there is messages are interpreted and received differently depending upon who the messenger is. We all know that, right? And at least on the on the outside in the public debate, what we hear very often is that people, the analytics people are arrogant or they're they're like overstating things or they're dismissing. And I feel like almost an exact equal opinion if given by someone who's a, a former football player who in a lot of circumstances, the topics we're talking about, they're probably actually less informed in some ways. No one says that person's arrogant for saying it because they have this like cachet, this sort of like built in, in um, acceptance that they're allowed to speak in things in a certain way. And we're not allowed to speak in things a certain way. Does any of that show up? Do, do you think any of that shows up within these organizations? It definitely does. It's, but it's really, really idiosyncratic and dependent on like the one person you're talking to and like their level of numeracy and also just your personal relationship with them. Um, and I think that's one place that like thinking back on my time inside of teams was something I tried to do. Um, was it was a real priority for me and certainly had mixed results and wasn't always um, perfect, but the more that you could build a personal relationship with um, traditional like football minds, like the more willing they were to listen and the, it became harder for them to tell themselves a story of like, Kevin is here to destroy football and is going to like ruin our team. It's like, it's very hard to do that if you actually like know who the person is. Um, but, you know, because like we're oftentimes like the, the new person on the block that does require 
you as the analyst to like introduce yourself and put in the effort to build that bridge um, so that you can walk over it later. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then how about even talking about Bill, I, I, like the, the, whoever is the person who's in, who's in charge and his power. And this is, goes back more into organizational type stuff. I know I'm jumping all over the place here, but some of these decisions that I see being made, I guess a solution for me, and I don't know if you would, you would agree on this, but a solution for me seems like maybe the way common front offices or NFL structures are made now is, is there too much power invested in too few individuals sometimes? And if so, maybe, if so, like, is there actually a way to change it? Because it would be pretty strange to say to someone, you know what, I want you to be our head coach, but you know, you're not gonna, you're gonna like not have these responsibilities or you're going to defer more, or you're just gonna have veto power as opposed to decision-making power over all of these things where even if it's a good idea, um, it just, it goes against the, the, the structure of how things have always been and, and, and what someone who's qualified would be willing to accept. Yeah, I think, I don't think there's an issue with having like one central decision maker, Um, like thinking about other like forms of like government, like, you know, we don't have direct democracy anymore because life is way too complicated. And, you know, I don't want to vote on every little thing. Um, And the person who's in charge is able to like have a much broader perspective of like the various trade-offs involved than I do. Um, But I think, the characteristics that you want to have in that person matter a lot. Like you want that person to be able to synthesize a lot of information and weigh trade-offs in an effective way versus relying solely on their own judgment and like what they've seen with their own eyes. Um, And that's, that's a place where I think the NFL is in transition um, where some some a lot like plenty of leaders uh, in the NFL uh, have been taught since they entered the league to trust their eyes and trust their opinion. They're paid for their opinion. Um, and when you get to a place where you're making decisions, you're no longer paid for your opinion. You're paid to synthesize everyone else's opinions and make a decision that's best for the organization. And those skills are very, very different. And how do you, how do you find these, these people, I guess Um, (laughs) that would be, that would question me. I think they're, that this is interesting with thing with coaching generally, like I'm more of the opinion that there are like a lot of really great coaches out there. Like there's just volume wise. Right. And we're seeing more and more the success that some young coaches can have. So it's not necessarily like an experience sort of, sort of issue too. So then it comes down to how do you find those, those coaches without, um, you know, having detailed interviews and whatever else you can do with thousands of people? Um, well, I, detailed interviews, I think, are, are actually pretty helpful. Um, yeah, I think there are certain issues that you can, like, poke and prod it a bit um, to understand what um, a coach's vision for his staff is going to look like. What responsibilities are you comfortable deferring or not? Or, um, you know our organization's plan is to have um, one of the nerds on the headset with you on Sunday. How does that feel? Um, Like what's your, what's your reaction to that? Um, Also getting an understanding of like what their philosophy, like I think coaching specifically is a place where it may, for, for where we are right now, like 
finding a coach whose instinct aligns with the data um, may be sufficient uh, versus having like finding a coach who's like truly data driven, finding a coach who's kind of like natural inclinations align with um, a lot of what the data would, su- would suggest um, will actually like prevent a lot of um, disagreements that may come between the coach and the rest of the organization because you've already screened for that. Yeah. I mean, how um, forthright do you think people are in interviews about now it's, it's not my fourth is not even the right way to describe it. I mean, some of it could be telling you what you want to hear. Some of it can be, maybe you just don't know how you're going to react in, in a certain situation. So in, in the moment of an interview, it sounds like you're like, Oh yeah, I'm fine with that. When the, you know, you feel like your back's against the wall, you're going to say, guess what? I'm, I'm changing things up at this point. Yeah. I mean, interviews are far from perfect. And I think, um, especially in something in a industry as high profile as the NFL, it's very fair to go back and look at, um, like media clips that people have done in the past or interviews they've given and, um, relying on references and talking with these people's coworkers, um, to understand, you know, how they think, uh, about problems are all, other ways of um, kind of getting around the question of like, is this really like, is this person really just telling me what I want to hear? Um, another, another way around that um, is to ask people rather than just like, what's your final answer is to like, tell me about your, tell me about your thinking in this. So like, I'm going to throw out a scenario. It's fourth and two on your minus 38 yard line and you're up by three points against Tom Brady. What's going through your mind? Um, and trying to get at how they think about problems versus just saying like, sure, I'm okay with, um, with the analytics group weighing in on coaching decisions, um, can also help you get a sense for whether or not that person's really going to be a partner with you in the, in that adventure. I mean, is I'm good enough. I'm good with letting the group weigh in on decisions. Is that good enough? Because I could see. A lot of people saying, yeah, I'm good with them weighing in the decisions. But the, I mean, I guess the important like inflection point there is like, am I good like taking that decision, even if maybe my instincts lean a little bit in a different direction or, or, or I'm good at like, am I able to weigh that properly? Yeah. So one of my favorite uh, interview questions um, with, with everyone is like, tell me about a time you changed your mind about something you felt really sure about. Um, and yeah, cause having someone who's like willing to, like, I get, I get the resistance from, um, a coach or, or really anyone when someone they don't know is trying to tell them how to do their job. Like anyone would be resistant to that. Um, and so understanding like how, how do you think through these problems and what information do you need in order to change your mind? Um, those are, those can be important questions because a lot of times the answer is like, you could tell me any information in the entire world and I'm not changing my mind. Um, we're seeing a lot of that happening now with um, the vaccine situation. Yeah. Um, and so those are, those are really hard um, conversations to have. Um, and that's probably a really unfair analogy. I should, I withdraw that. <laughs> I withdraw that from consideration, but you know, it, there, there is like, some level of 
you know, there are some beliefs that are held so tightly that nothing you could tell me is going to change my mind. And, um, especially for executive positions, finding people who are willing to change their mind matters a lot. Right, right. Okay, so uh, the, the kind of last general category that I wanted to hit here, and it's kind of, is, is trying to really figure out since people, you know, we're on the outside here uh, looking in, like what are the, what don't we understand on the inside? Maybe what's totally going wrong here. I mean, hopefully for your own mental sanity, you're not following too much of the conversation of what's going on on Twitter and what these things are going on. But what do you think when you're seeing the conversations going on the outside, what is the biggest difference between maybe the, the, the focus, the perspective, the, those sorts of things? I mean, I, I enjoy following the, the online crowd, especially not like since I'm not part of a team now, it's certainly something that I like uh, in tapped into. Um, I think the maybe one or two places that um, I like sometimes find the conversation going a bit off the rails is like comes back to understanding like the scheme that and like what players are being asked to do and evaluating players in that context um, like there are plenty of examples, um, like thinking back on my time in Cleveland where like a player was either really put in a position to succeed or was put in a position not to succeed, um, and then got judged based off of whether or not they succeeded. And some were set up much better than others. And I think a lot of, I think the analytics community does a better job of adjusting for that context than like the average fan who's like yelling at the TV. Um, but I think that's, that's one place where, um, and I, where the community can still grow. And I think a lot of that comes down to like data availability um, where unless you have uh, like a team level PFF subscription uh, and even then like you're not getting access to all of the data that you would want to evaluate, evaluate these players based off of what they're being asked to do. And in a situation like that, would that be something that is a somewhat universally held opinion within the building or within maybe even other buildings looking at this? Or is it maybe not even necessarily understood, you know, by, by everyone? Is this more of like, I don't say your personal way of looking at it, but you know what I mean? Like it's from, it's from, a, it's from a perspective. Yeah, sure. Well, so the non-analytics people in NFL buildings are probably not following the online NFL analytics debate I very closely, very closely at all. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I hope they're not. Yeah, I hope they're not working twenty hours a day and uh, logging on because that would be that would be detrimental. Yeah, they're they're logging on and being mad at Ben Baldwin. Um, <laughs> no, I think the, um, but I do think that that's like uh, a fairly consistent. Um, I, w- I wouldn't even call it like it's a fairly consistent observation of just, you know, when you're on the team side, you just have access to more information. And so you're able to like bake that information in much more effectively than if you don't have it. And so it's not like, it's not necessarily like a critique, even it's just acknowledging that this is a limitation of what's available publicly. Okay. So, so that, that makes sense. Now I'm thinking of, I know we're a little bit past draft season, but draft is always an interesting thing because people have, like there's so there's this draft industrial complex, right? Of all these people on the outside evaluating every prospect. And very often it seems like the league will be very off on one player versus another. So is that enough versus how that will be seen on the outside? Is, is this another thing that's maybe an informational issue? Um, or are there other ways people on the outside don't 
uh, aren't viewing things correctly from a draft perspective, do you think? Um, I guess is part of what you're getting at, like, is the NFL, are NFL teams better at drafting than the consent, than like the outside world? Is that? Yeah, that, that, that's part of it. I mean, I'll say like the whole, you know, grading the draft steals or oh. the players who fall, that sort of thing. Like, should we be confident when someone falls in the draft that there is a legitimate reason for, for that happening beyond, um, you know, NFL evaluators, at least those teams that were lined up to potentially choose this player didn't end up choosing them. I'm just trying to get an idea of like how, like what, what portion, if you had a pie of everything that you're looking at for evaluation for a player, like what portion of the pie can we see from the outside if it's by like importance? Oh man. Um, probably most of it is, well, most of it is, is hidden, but like the consensus rankings are a pretty good proxy for it. Um, Uh I mean, I think if you took the average of every NFL draft board, you would probably end up somewhere decently close to the like public, like the pre-draft public rankings. Um, but each team has like lots of noise around that average. And so they're going to, have these random players that they happen to be much higher or lower on um, than the, the consensus in terms of the, the day after the draft grades, I think we all kind of laugh at those and they're, but like, they're fun. That's what they're there for. They're not, at least in my opinion, I don't think of those as like, I'm seriously, I think the GM should be fired today because I'm grading his draft a D it's more there just to like provide some commentary, but also to like, capture what the beliefs were at the moment of the draft. And I think that is actually generally really helpful um, because what we also do is look, you know, five years later, we look back on the draft class and reevaluate it. And I think it is helpful to have some written record of like what the thinking was at the time those decisions were getting made versus what we know in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, I was focusing maybe a little bit too much on guys who fall. I think it's also this interesting phenomenon of, players who were picked a lot earlier than where they're they're thought of going because I like okay so it's every organization they have a team right they have a team of scouts they have a team of numbers people they have uh, decision makers they have this whole organization but I don't really know like how similar the opinions are in different organizations right so there's like how much within the organization, like if, if you have 10 different scouts who are looking at this, Adam's making up numbers, so, but, but if you have 10 scouts who are looking at this, how much are you then going to weigh what you believe to be maybe the consensus opinion outside of this? Because, or and does that matter? Because it seems very strange. It seems like a good team, you know, a good football team, you, you go with your evaluation sort of thing. So I'm always wondering from that too. I'm always thinking like, should decision makers also be thinking about the consensus that may exist outside of their own building? Yeah, that's a very tricky dynamic uh, because there, there usually are, you know, at least a handful of players, you know, one way or the other that even though, you know, five or 10 people in the organization have um, graded a player, they're meaningfully different from where kind of the consensus has those players. Um, and so just thinking about like the, the internal culture um, of each team, it's, it's pretty hard to like look at um, a scout or a group of scouts or the whole front office and say, you know, I know that we all really like player A over player B, 
but consensus actually has player uh, B higher than player A. And so we're right. going with player B like that's, you know, that's a, obviously like an extreme example, but you know, even the shades of gray there can be really hard to, to work through. Um, and, but there is, there is a real nugget in there. Like I think teams would benefit from um, at least pushing their evaluations or like nudging them closer to the consensus that they'd probably end up in a little bit of a better place if they did that most of the time. Um, but it's really hard to have that be like anywhere on the list of reasons that you drafted a player. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you know, like the consensus for doesn't have like all this information, right. That, 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 that has had inside, at least when you're looking at some of these outside, outside opinions. So for a few players in particular, I assume that's a big driving driving factor, whether it's medicals or, or something else that may be going on. Yeah, it, it certainly can be. I guess I'm I'm almost like from from that comment, I was kind of excluding those cases where it's just like, yeah. oh, like the league kind of just knows something about this player that isn't public yet. And like once once that information becomes public, it will make lots of sense why a certain player fell um, to where they were. Um, but even in cases where that's not true. Um, like nudging the draft board a little bit towards the consensus would probably make them more accurate over the long run. Um, but, but again, that's very hard to actually implement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, the last thing inside versus outside, we're talking about the, the tracking data. I know people are getting their hands on some of it and what they're able to do, I guess, just from a broad perspective, do you feel like the insights you can derive from this type of data, not going into specifics, but the insights you can derive, do you think it's higher, lower, maybe about right in with what people are hoping for, at least in the, in the short term? Um, I think, so this is actually aligns really closely with uh, the work that I'm doing right now um, yeah. at Zealous. And, you know, from, from my relationships around the league, like I've continued to hear that the tracking data just is still this thing that like, no one really has time to sink their teeth in with like very few exceptions. It's really hard for a team, uh, for an analytics team on the inside to really carve out the time and energy they need to really like attack that data the way that you'd really want to. And so teams have definitely used it in a variety of ways to um, get at some like more basic insights, but thinking of the like transformative impact it's had on baseball and basketball. Um, I don't think that that uh, level of impact has hit the NFL yet. Um, but that is something that we're working on. So um, hopefully that's coming soon, but I think a lot of this comes down to just like the level of investment that the league has been willing to put towards um, towards data analysis. Um, if you have a, the, uh, the median NFL analytics team is about five people with like three analysts and two uh, engineers, they have a lot of stuff on their plate. And so uh, finding many, many person years for them to dedicate to uh, tracking data analysis just doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think the, the maybe different categories for what the tracking data can do one being speeding up and maybe streamlining existing processes that people may have just, just from watching film um, so I guess that that's a part of, of what's going on. And that, and that makes sense that anyone could kind of use that. But from the other side, when we're talking about like the insights that you're getting from that, 
do you suspect that they will bring new insights or do you think it's like potentially backing, giving you better data to, um, to back up insights that maybe people haven't bought, bought into as much? I mean, I think the bigger impact will be just brand new insights and being able to like quantify things that we just like haven't been able to before. Right. Uh, so whole new categories of things to look at. Yeah. I think that's going to be like the bigger like value add versus just like reinforcing some of the things that we are already know. Um, yeah. I think that like for the things that we already know, we already, we, if we, if we truly know them, then we must have pretty good evidence around them um, right. versus like tracking data can really open the door to a lot of uh, metrics that like would just be impossible to calculate any other way. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. I think I've, I've kept you here for about an hour. So I maybe a little bit more. So I appreciate the time, Kevin, uh, follow Kevin on Twitter. I guess he's you're, you're like I said, now you're, you're a free man. Maybe we'll get some good insightful, uh, tweets out there at KS mirrors. Um, anything else you want to, you want to plug before what's going on? I know you guys are building a powerhouse team over there at Zella. So, uh, do, are we going to see anything in the future coming up here? Well, uh, we are currently hiring. And so if you're interested in getting into the sports analytics world, you can uh, check out the, uh, the job posting on indeed.com. Um, and yeah, would love to work with um, motivated uh, data scientists and engineers to help solve some of these crazy problems for teams. Sounds great. Yeah. Check it out. Like I said, I, I was looking at the the roster of talent you have over there a few definitely names that i recognize and uh, pretty impressive so uh congratulations there and thanks for your time and thanks for everyone for tuning in